0: You know, there's not a Sunday, just for your information. I'm about to say something like, this is the most important message you're ever going to hear. But there's not a Sunday where I don't feel that way. (laughs) Whatever it is I'm about to say is more important than what we said last week and more important than anything else I can think of. And I think that's the way in which God's designed preaching to feel to us. Um, But if I could... If I had, you, know, you guys remember when you ever go to, years ago, 3D movies, you know, and they, and they give you, a, there's a box of those little glasses, and you put them on there, and there's a red and blue thing, and you, and you sit down with your plastic glasses on, and, you, and you're watching this movie. It's like, it's like you needed those glasses to be able to experience and see something that you weren't going to see without them. And I wish I had a box of glasses that I could walk around, especially the young people here but for everybody and just put these glasses on you and say hey when, when, you, when you go out to do life this week you're going to need these and just one after another one after another put, put these glasses on you so that when you stare out at whatever you're about to take in and then sift through it and think about it that you would see it through a lens I need a lens through which to see creation, activity, the world, ideas I need a lens and Keith pointed that out, which what a great job this morning, leading us in worship today. Yeah, amen. Be thou my vision. Be my vision. Oh God, you who created everything. Be the lens through which I see your creation. You understand, if you take those glasses off and you stare out at a world that God made, you have any idea how confusing it's going to be? You and I are not equipped to see life the way it really is until we put the lens on, and he is our vision. So this message today is about very much about installing some lenses through which we see the world around us. So I titled the message today, The ABCs of Yeshab. Remember, Yeshab is the game of dwelling on earth, and, and whether you signed on for it or not, you're playing it. You're playing it every day of your life. You have unpacked the box when you got born and you got diapers put on you and you started doing life, you unpacked the box. You may have been a little bit too quick to try and play the game and you failed to read the instructions. So we've been reading the instructions every week together to help us start 2024. We're going to read them again here, Psalm 24, right in the middle there. We've got one more weekend playing the game of Yeshua. next week. We'll read the rest of Psalm 24. Listen carefully. Verse three asks this question about our lives: Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? Right? Don't 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 overlook that because that right there is the, hey, hey. What are you doing this week? What are you up to this week? What are you aiming at this week? What are you going to be occupied with this week? How about, this is, this is a, a description of being near the, the creator, right? The hill of the Lord, the, the holy place, it's a location, it's, it's an access point, it's a nearness of God experience, which isn't it great for you to know that the, the creator wants to be intimate with you? He wants to be near you. He wants to be engaged and communicating and relating to you. Well, that that's the goal of what God is doing in the game this week. And that, that needs to inform my goal. Which, by the way, let me just highlight this. Preaching does something to our lives. Uh, it's different than what you get when you're in your prayer closet by yourself or you're picking up the Bible by yourself. Can I, can I just advertise this? And again, my back is to the... To the audience, when we're engaging worship on Sunday mornings, I'm not spinning around looking to see, "Hey, who ain't here yet? Who's just waiting to show up when we preach?" Which I appreciate that you show up at all, but uh, worship is is a God-designed, unique means of drawing near to God. Now, listen: if if you have no concept of nearness, you'll let this kind of stuff fall by the wayside. If all you have is a concept of "I'm lost" or "I'm saved," Which are good concepts to have, by the way. They're in the Bible. But, but on the saved side, on the I'm in a relationship with God, there is still this thing in the Bible that feels like nearness and farness. The proximity, experience, encounter. And then God designs some things. And one of the things he designs is music. When you open up the scriptures... There's this unique thing in the Bible that sits in its own category. It's it's music. It's musicians and words and prophecy put to music that when we sing about the greatness of God, you know, that greatness that we sang about, then it just kind of catch you as you were just, you're singing about greatness and it just all of a sudden goes off in your heart differently than when I just read the word Greatness. And that's a a good thing to do. I hope you read a lot of the Bible. But singing these things from your heart is a different experience and encounter. Don't be late for that. And there's something about the Bible. Not only does it honor God, but it's designed to interact with my soul in a way that's unique. Figure out how to make that as important as anything you're doing here on Sunday mornings. Chase after the nearness of God. And and I I thank God, prank thank those guys, and we thank the guys who lead us every week musically. There's something about you putting notes and melody to these words that brings nearness closer to us. And we are grateful that you help us do that every week. Here's the rest of this psalm. Who will stand in his holy place? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. We've... In playing the game, you know, you always got some kind of little cards that you get when you play a game. You pull a card and it tells you something. It gives you an insight. It gives you a little advantage in playing the next round, et cetera. Well, we've pulled three cards. We've pulled the card of authority. So when we go to play the game, we go out into this world understanding there is authority in this world. And we encounter it and we walk in it every day. And last week we talked about believing things. Walking by faith. You and I cannot play the game just going through the motions. You, you can go through the motions and not believe things, right? You can be here this morning and not really be believing much. You just be going through the motions. You go to church. You're a person who grew up going to church. But to believe something is to lean in. It, it's to engage it from my heart. It's to take the risk that I actually think this is going to be in my future. And then it gets risky because how near of a future are you talking about? You talking about this week? Right? You know anybody sick? You praying for them to be healed? You taking a risk in believing something? You are, right? And the biggest risk is you don't understand whether that healing is this week or eternal. But when you pray into that realm, that's what you're engaging but you can't just decide, hey, I'm not going to live in that realm, uh, you know, because that's too risky. I could, get, I could get disappointed. You're called to walk by faith, which means you are called to step out into the unknown. And that's always a little risky and a little scary feeling. But, but the last of the ABCs that we're going to visit here in this series is the word convictions. We don't just have beliefs. We have convictions, and there is a difference. I want to make sure and highlight today. So so what are convictions? I put a definition there from the English dictionary. The word convictions means a, a fixed or firmly held belief. Hold on to that word fixed. Immovable. Fixed belief. A state of being convinced. So there are things that are supposed to sit in our lives. They're fixed, and we are convinced about them. I wrote this in your outline. It is not uncommon for beliefs to bend over time. They have variations from one culture to the next, from one generation to the next. But the rapid rate of such severe change in our lifetime is unprecedented. Some of us are shocked to see things that were extremely frowned upon at one point in our lives are as commonly embraced by the world today and we're just kind of shocked by that. And you gotta notice that. Carl Truman wrote a book a couple years ago called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. It's a, it's a rather complicated book, quite honestly. Uh, Carl's a bit of a philosophical writer, but he, but he says this, and it's going to touch a nerve. Everybody, please be ready, um, depending on where you are in some of these topics. But hey, I'm not up here to, to talk about non-real life. I'm, I'm here to talk about real life with us, right? So listen to what he says. He says, the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. Quote, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. My grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago. And yet, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid or immoral or subject to yet another irrational phobia. In short, to move from the commonplace thinking of my grandfathers would to that of today demands a host of key shifts, ideas need to move to a new address for that statement to make sense. In popular beliefs, in these and other areas, it is the story of those shifts, or perhaps better, of the background of those shifts that I seek to address in the subsequent chapters. But I recognize even, even in me choosing to quote from that book and to touch that topic this morning, that topic is sitting in us like a powder keg. Now, and you do understand, I just want to catch the, sh- the shock value of how much things move in our lives. Do you understand? Not only would that not upset anybody 20 years ago, maybe even, uh, it would still seem very strange to hear somebody say it, Like like, what exactly are you talking about? Whereas 20 years later, that's a very common phrase. Everybody's interacted with it. We almost treat it like it's normal. It doesn't shock anyone anymore. Because beliefs are shifting right in front of our eyes. What used to be fixed is no longer fixed. And that is showing up in religious systems as well, in Christianity in how the church engages its ideas. Ryan Berg has written a a book a number of years ago called The Nuns, The Rise of the Nuns, not the N-U-N-S, not people who wear the the black outfits, but the nuns as though people who don't believe anything, in particular in the religious categories. It says this, "In In the nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they're going, Ryan Berg details a comprehensive picture of an increasingly significant group. Americans who say they have no religious affection. affiliation, sorry. The growth of the nuns in American society has been dramatic. Listen, in 1972, just five percent of Americans claimed no religion on the general social survey. And that 5% number was probably true in 1952, 1902, right? 1800s. That's, that number probably did not change for decades and generations. The growth of the nuns, I'm sorry, in, in, where am I lost here? In 2018, that number rose to 23.7%. Making the nuns as numerous as both evangelical Protestants and Roman Catholics. Every indication is that the nuns will be the largest religious group in the United States in the next decade. That's a massive shift. They were 14 percent in 2008, so you go from five to 14, and then 14 to 12, almost 24 and this is particularly alarming. this is where I could, if if you're a Gen Z younger person, I wish I had glasses, I could stick on you because you you are sifting through a volume of ideas every day of your life that's trying to tell you something about how to interpret your life every day. And here's what's happening. Among 18 to 22 year olds, one third of them identify as nothing in particular. So the younger you are, the more you are adjusting your beliefs into a category where they don't weigh anything to you anymore. And please don't make the mistake of thinking because you come with your parents to this church on any given Sunday that you're escaping that. That's not the case. I've quoted from this book before and I just want to remind you of it. It's a a bit of an interesting study and a terrifying study all at the same time. These guys who wrote the book, The Great Dechurching, is an awareness of what's in the air out there. And if you're a Christian, you are not exempt from this. And you are not exempt from it because you go to Lakeview Christian Center either. In this book, they say, in the United States, you've heard me say part of this before. In the United States, we are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country as tens of millions of formerly regular Christian worshipers nationwide have decided they no longer desire to attend church at all. These are what we now call the dechurched. About 40 million adults in America today used to go to church, but no longer do, which accounts for about 16% of our adult population. For the first time in the eight decades that Gallup has tracked American religious membership, More adults in the United States do not attend church than attend church. This is not a gradual shift. It is a jolting one. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. Adding to the alarm is the fact that this phenomenon has rapidly increased since the mid-1990s. Why? Why this massive shift? Well, I think quite honestly, it has a lot to do with the topic we're talking about today. The way in which beliefs are held by people. The way in which you might be sitting in a church building, you might be watching online and you've zoomed into some place in New Orleans and you're watching a church talk about issues. You may be getting around ideas and, and your means of acknowledging those ideas, of interacting with those ideas has, has fallen into what I would call casual considerations. Not convictions. Casual considerations. I mean, because let's face it, if I'm, if I'm Google searching or checking my feed, there's, there's more stuff to get to. There's something else coming. I don't have time to actually stare at that for very long. Take it in, argue with it, consider it, boot out bad ideas, receive good ideas, abandon some of my own conclusions for the sake of what it's saying because I'm just going to casually move on to the next thought. And I've got one casual consideration in my life after another. And they just keep coming. You live in the information age. It's like living in, in an infinity pool. It just keeps on coming. I mean, if all of us broke out our devices and say, okay, nobody gets to eat until you get to the end. We'd all starve to death, right? We'd be, we'd be done. Because there's just another idea available. Somebody else is saying something else about something that's got to do with my life. And if it didn't have anything to do with my life, I wouldn't be reading it. As soon as I come across something that's got nothing to do with me, I don't even read that thing. So, I'm reading ideas that sound like they're talking about my life, but I'm so casual and I'm just considering them. They're not my convictions, I don't own them that way. But Christianity is not designed to be casually considered. God doesn't speak that way. Do you ever pick the Bible up and get the sense that, that God is just sort of talking about a topic and he's kind of like, hey, if you got a minute. You know, I had a thought one time. You might want to think about it too. But you know, if you don't have time, I understand. Does that how God sounds when you read him in the Bible? Does, does it sound like the God of the universe has this profound respect for everybody's opinion? i mean, really, I mean, the only way you could possibly be saying that is you, you've never picked this up. Have you, you've never listened to the tone of what God says in it. And then you live in a time and I live in a time that has shaped the way we think about stuff. So this as Carl Truman points out this elevation of the individual. So here's what's happening. Here's how this happens in our culture. Step one, detach from the idea that there's any ultimate authority anywhere. You got to make that idea smaller. That used to be a firm idea, and I think it had something to do with the percentages that you're describing. There used to be a firm idea that there's an ultimate opinion out there that everything answers to. People believe that. But that got displaced. You do now know who is the ultimate opinion about anything, right? It's you. And anybody who dares to tell you that somebody else's idea should push yours out of the way, yours should give way to that one, that one should be imposed upon you. I mean, the world has carefully, carefully created an atmosphere in which that imposition feels wrong. How dare anyone tell you what you have to believe? But what you just did, and this is what the devil did, and this is the cultural impact of spiritual warfare, is make this book sound really, really weird to your ears. Because God doesn't speak like he's trying to gather in your opinion. He speaks like he has the opinion you need. And and if you believe it, it'll be well for you and it'll be eternally good for you. That's how God sounds. So I want to introduce us to, when we read these passages, there are convictions in them as though they're saying things that are absolutely what they are. Absolutely what they are. Right. So maybe you read through these verses too fast, but there's implications in Psalm 24. Let's go back and read it again. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? There's an opportunity for your life presented to us. Well, who's going to do that? He who has, listen to these words, clean hands. Any kind of hands? Whatever hands you prefer? No, no, no. Clean hands. Well, clean's according to who? Uh, You know, an eight-year-old playing in the backyard? You ever ask him what clean looks like? Go clean your hands. Are your hands clean? You're coming to eat. Are your hands clean? According to him, yes. Yes. According to mom, no. Well, you know, we're kind of like just eight-year-olds playing in God's world. And, hey, Keith, you got clean hands? Yeah. Let me see them. Come here. God doesn't have the same opinion about the word clean. That word clean, it means blameless. Guiltless. You got blameless and guiltless hands? Is there such a common concept as guiltless? Because if there is such a concept as guiltless, there's also a concept of what? Guilty. Right? This just makes sense. I'm not trying to be a rocket scientist here. This is like words actually mean something, class. And so if we read God's word, it installs convictions because these are, these are absolutes. Clean hands and a pure heart. That word pure is the word empty or clear. It's, it's unpolluted. So if you have something that's pure, you have something that is impure. Your heart could be impure then. It does not lift up his soul to what is false. Do you have convictions about what's false? Who's defining those convictions? The word false doesn't just mean untrue in this sense. It means vain and empty. It's an alternative to what God says is meaningful and real. And we have chosen something else. But, the, but it's not self-defined. I don't get to define these words. And he does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness. Who is defining that word for us? That, that word means rightness. Particularly rightness with God. From the God of his salvation. That that word, when it's translated elsewhere, it speaks of deliverance and rescue and safety. Do you have any knowledge that you are in a perilous condition from which you need to be rescued? You need to find a safe place because if you don't know Christ, you're not in a safe place. Is that sort of true for those who feel like it's true? Or is that true? see, How do I hold this stuff? Beliefs that are okay for you, but I don't really need to subscribe to that. Are these things absolutely true? See, it's crazy. If if these words don't mean anything in particular, there's not a specific definition for any of these words, and God picks them up, puts them in his mouth, and uses them, and we turn them into vague concepts that mean a different thing to every person, this book doesn't mean anything anymore. You can make it mean whatever you want, but is that how you do life? Right? I mean, do you drive down the street and and say, does, does, does 70 miles an hour really mean 70 miles an hour? I mean, maybe it means 70 miles an hour to you, but to me, you know, I don't feel like I'm going 70 miles an hour. You know, is that really what the traffic people wrote on that sign, or did somebody else change the sign? Is this how you do life? every day of our lives we believe things and they become immovable objects in our lives well that's what the word of god is that's what god's revelation is we get convictions from god psalm 15 is kind of like psalm 24's twin listen listen to how psalm 15 says the exact same stuff oh lord Who shall sojourn in your tent, right? Listen, hey, God's not just interested in saving you and and putting you on the rolls of heaven, although he's very much interested in that. He wants you to sojourn with him. He wants you to do life with him. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly. Does that mean anything? Well, yes, it does. And does what is right, which means what? If you can do what's right, then you can also do what is wrong. And speaks truth in his heart. If there are truthful things to speak in your heart, then there are also untruthful things, right? Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Evil. Does evil mean evil in the Bible? And what exactly is evil? Is, is evil uh, the person at the grocery store who put two glass items in your bag and they clashed together and broke on the way home? Is that evil? I mean, who gets to define these words? God does. Why does he get to define them? Well, did you read the instructions? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein He owns this place. He invented the game. He gets to define these terms. And he does not take up a reproach against his friend. Well, I didn't do anything wrong to you. I don't know why you're so mad at me. Did you or didn't you? Well, as far as I feel like, I didn't do anything wrong. But the Bible speaks about a reproach against his friend. Who gets to define whether that was a reproach for that person? Me or God? And listen to verse, this is a shocking verse. I I don't know if modern man knows this exists in the Bible. Verse four. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. That word despised there, it's a strong word. It means disdain, contempt. This is actually the psalmist portraying, hey, what's your attitude like towards the vileness of that? How are you feeling about that? I mean, that's kind of up to them. I don't know. It's none of my business. You've been taught to be indifferent in this world about so many things that God is not indifferent about. I'm not in this world to get along with fellow humanity. I'm in this world to bring glory to God who has a, hey, he has words like this, a vile person. Who gets to say that's vile? Well, God does. But who honors those who fear the Lord and swears to his own hurt and does not change. An appropriate response in Psalm 15 is somebody who does life stares out at all that's going on in humanity and sees vileness. That's vile right there. What you're doing is vile. Does that sound cruel to say? That you would recognize that another person is doing something that is not to be applauded or appreciated or celebrated, but that the Bible actually stares out at human behavior and says, that is vile. And then it expects us to agree with it. Well, who, anybody? No, those who want to dwell in the tent of God. Those who want to walk near to him. You need to be able to see. And then you turn around and you honor those who fear the Lord. You, you see that as well. So, right, these are the glasses that we wear. We put this on and we go out and we do life. And, and if you're a young person, I get... Uh, this is not a knock on being young. It, when you're young, you're taking in stuff that you're seeing for the first time or the second time. You don't know what to do with it. And, but, and then when you watch other people put labels on it and and applaud it and, and you're interacting with it and you don't, hey, the Bible would call that vile. Somebody else gave it a thumbs up. You just posted that. Somebody said something that God says, no, what on earth are you talking about? And then we turn around and say, thumbs up. And everybody around us is trying to figure out, well, how do I label that? And it's very tempting, especially this is where the body of Christ doesn't do itself a favor. When, when we are as confused as the world is and we stare at things and we label them and we applaud the same things the world applauds, but why do we do that? Because we don't have convictions. We have casual considerations, which are not convictions. I, I know it's, it's, it's still cool to associate the word love with God and the word love with religion. As a matter of fact, that's sort of like the top of the food chain, right? The one thing that we still respect, hey, is we should love, hey, everybody loves, if we would just love and God is love. All right. Where are you going with that word? Are you you going to be informed by what the Bible has to say? Would you be shocked to read these next couple of verses with me? That they are laid against the word love so that love has a definition. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Come on, people. Let love be genuine. That preaches, doesn't it? Come on. Next thought, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Written down by the Apostle Paul. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Well, those two words have definitions. Evil has a definition in the Bible. Good has a definition in the Bible. I don't get to have my own definitions for these words and say, let love be genuine and let that love be informed by hating what is evil, despising what is evil and holding fast to what is good. If you lose those concepts, good luck with using the word love. You kind of really don't know what the word means. Because to love someone means you have to be aware of what would harm them, what would not be good for them, of where a direction for their life is good. This is a good thing. Oh, cling to this. I want to encourage you in that. I want to come alongside that. I want to care for you and, and help you down this pathway. What if you're helping someone down a evil pathway? Is that really love? Could you possibly qualify to have genuine love for another person while you hasten them down a road of evil? All of us would look at that and think, that's the villain. That's the villain in the movie. Look at him, he's, he's tricking her and leaning her down the pathway that, I know what's at the end of that pathway. Oh, it looks good right now, but you know where it's going, don't you? And for somebody to, hey, come on. No, that's, come on, this is good to call evil good and good evil, the Bible says. So you kind of can't really have convictions about love if they're uninformed, right? The Apostle Paul says something similar. Philippians chapter one, who would have thought to stick this concept next to the word love? Paul said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. And all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. When someone describes love, do you fill it in with these words? Knowledge and discernment, and approving of what's excellent, pure and blameless. Do you pull those words alongside love? The Bible does. It installs ideas alongside these ideas that you and I remember. We're playing a game that we have no idea where this stuff came from. There are concepts in the world, there's this concept called love. Someone is going to define that for you and explain to you what love speech and hate speech looks and sounds like. Somebody is going to ref- define that for you. But God has already defined some things, He's already spoken. These things aren't up for grabs. If I treated what God said like they were the absolutes that they are, they would be fixed, right? This is where convictions come from. They would be fixed and firm. They would not be moving the way they are. And why is this important if you're going to be a Christian? Because you're following Jesus who is fixed and firm and defined. God is not morphing. He's not slowly changing with the times. God is not on the wrong side of history. Have you heard these phrases? As though, hey, if you want to be progressive, can I just tell you, God is not progressive. And I don't mean that in a political sense. It's the the concept that man is moving towards something better. Uh, God's not moving. He is who he is. He, he doesn't learn something today and then improve himself tomorrow. He doesn't come across a concept that makes him go, hey, here, quick, huddle up, Holy Spirit, Jesus, do you remember when we used to think like this? That moment never happens. God doesn't discover things that then change him, but we do. But if our convictions are based on the character and nature of God, there are some things that we're called to believe that never change. Not from generation to generation. Not from moment to moment. Not from ethical situation to ethical situation. They remain the same. And that's where you get convictions from. Because convictions aren't trendy little casual considerations. They are fixed truths, and ah, the church needs to pay attention to this category in an information age that's drowning us in considering things. But here's how the Bible explains what happened in this category. Romans chapter 1. In fact, if you're a Christian, you, you should always be bumping into massive thoughts from Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 3, chapter 6, 7, and 8. I mean, there's places in Romans that you should almost have them memorized. We've, we've hung out in these spaces so often. But, but what has happened in our lifetime is, is simply an accelerated expression of Romans chapter 1. Right? You and I are living in this reality At an accelerated pace. This was true in the first century when Paul wrote it, but he didn't live in the information age. He didn't live with devices in every pocket and ideas that are in an infinity pool waiting for us to take them in. Listen to Romans 1, verse 16. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Does that word salvation mean anything? It does, doesn't it? Does it mean what Paul meant for it to mean? Or does it mean what I mean for it to mean? Does it mean what the prosperity gospel means for it to mean? Where God's great act of redemption in this world is about putting more money in your pocket and getting you to drive a better car? Is is that what salvation is about in our world? Because unfortunately, Lots and lots of popularity and publishing is done in that category. But that word means something when it was used. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. All right, does that concept have a definition? The righteousness of God. Does that exist or is that just kind of like, hey, fill that in, whatever you want it to mean, it can mean. Because this passage says the gospel reveals it. It does not invent it. It does not comment on it. It reveals it. So you and I are not in a place in God's world playing God's game, God's way. We're not in a place to define these terms. We're only in a place to discover their definition. So the gospel reveals the righteousness of God from faith for faith as it's written. The righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Can I just tell you, I know a lot of people kind of don't like that. It's kind of like Frank standing up here and saying, hey, you know, if there's a heaven, there's also a hell. And then I don't know how new you are to the church and maybe some, you know, I know we've got a lot of new folks and so maybe you're hearing that and you're kind of like thinking, what kind of church is this? You believe in hell. Uh, we believe a lot of things that the Bible says. Awkward words like wrath. The, the active pouring out of God's righteous character against that which is sinful. We believe in that. Why do you believe in it? Because it's revealed. I, I, I don't get to vote on it. In the gospel, the wrath of God is revealed whether i like it or not it's fixed it's immovable it's revealed from heaven against what ungodliness well who gets to define that term i think it means exactly what it was meant to mean when it was written right here it's revealed against unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth All right, so you can walk out into this world, but if you don't put your glasses on and look out at the world, realize this, when you walk out there, you are in a suppression chamber 24-7. This world is designed to suppress the truth. Every day that you and I do life, it's not going to advertise the truth to you. It's not going to highlight it, promote it, and clarify it. It's going to suppress it it's going to push it down so you can't notice it as easily and it will invent a thousand ways to do that for what what can be known about god is plain then why is that so significant because all these definitions come from who god is and that gets to be discovered not invented righteousness and unrighteousness godliness and ungodliness are based on who is god Not based on welcome to 2024, you old-fashioned old people. Get with it. What can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Well, that doesn't mean they're not suppressing the truth, though. They're still without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And they began to casually consider ideas. No longer holding fast to immovable truths about God. They exchanged that for something else. I don't want my belief system to be formulated out of a God who never moves. I want it to be formulated out of something else. And that's what the world has done. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what the gospel reveals. These things don't move. They're, they will not trend They don't gain in popularity. Well, maybe they do, but that's irrelevant. They are what they are. They are immovable beliefs, fixed. And the question is whether or not you and I treat them that way. That's what it means for me to have convictions, is to own something that's immovable. I don't negotiate with it because I don't have the right to pick it up and move it over here. I don't have that right. Only the God who owns the universe has the right to relocate that. So if God decides, hey, I'm changing this whole thing. Hey, all these ideas you had about marriage, I'm changing all that. It's a new day. Those were old ideas. It's a new day. Hey, when God does that, let's all warm up to the idea that one man and one woman constitute a a marriage in the eyes of God. If God jettisons that idea, we should too. But if he doesn't, we don't have any rights to redefine these things. And when we start thinking we do, you have just pushed convictions into the category of casual considerations. What kind of mood am I in? Who do I know? I'm not trying to be unsympathetic here. I just want you to be aware of how this is going to go off in you. It's one thing to hold convictions in these categories of gender and same-sex and same-sex attraction struggles and all the things that are real issues, by the way. I'm 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 not in any way insinuating those are not real experiences. But you can hold those convictions and and then suddenly someone very close to you is walking in those issues. They're experiencing those things. Your child. Somebody you're close to. Suddenly, that's real for them. Does that change what you believe about it? Now, I understand why that's tempting because you're trying to rescue relationship, which you should. You're trying to care and love and engage people where they are, which you should. You're trying to not lose a relationship with them in your life, and you suspect you you will. All those things are real. I'm sympathetic to all those things, but they do not tell you what to believe about something that's already been revealed. That's what a conviction is an immovable fixed truth. So you just had this presentation in Romans there that that there is this immovable fixed God out of which we understand the gospel. He doesn't change, but you do. And so you're going to be moving to new addresses. And then what it says next after this, verse 24, this sounds the headlines of our lives. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. In other words, there were people who exchanged immovable things for movable things, why? Because they wanted something in their heart. Was that genuine? Oh yeah. Very genuine. Did they really really have an attraction inside of them for something, someone? Yes. No not denying that at all. God actually acknowledges these are real. Feelings of the heart. He gave them up to impurity. Some of these desires of the heart that are really, really, really in your heart, they're labeled by God as impure to the dishonoring of their bodies. Understand there are things people are doing with their bodies that are not honorable. God puts a different label on it because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. This is not ignoring sincere passions. Yes, sincere. Genuine passions. Yes, genuine passions. Really, really, really wanting and feeling compelled towards something. Yes, 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 but God still labels it dishonorable passions. And then he explains what that means. And I'm sorry, you cannot escape this in the modern setting. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, were they really attracted to each other? Yes. Did something really feel compelling? See, this is the mystery the Bible explains to us. There are lots of things that I will genuinely desire strongly in my life that are not godly. Anybody in this room really, really, really desire to gossip and tell somebody else about stuff that, that if they knew about the person that you don't like either they wouldn't like them either is that sitting in you like yeah I don't really want to do that but I guess I'll make myself that's not how it feels is it you feel compelled for the good of the universe (laughs) and everyone who might ever have a conversation with them I'm just trying to help everyone here by letting you know he's not exactly who you think he is you ever act in anger toward another person? I mean, just really let your words off the leash. Say things, maybe even physically do something. Hit someone. Push someone. Get up in their face. Have a look on your face that looks like you could drive nails with it. You ever done that? Did you do it because you didn't really want to? Hey, babe, give me a minute. I, I, I need to work myself up here to get really, really mad at you. I just... I'll, How's, how's it? Does it, does it, how's it, no, no, give me a second. I don't really want to do this, but they're real desires. You really, really, really want to do this stuff. So then we come along and, and we have this one unique category in our world that says, but I'm really, really attracted to the same sex. Can, can you tell me what at all is different about that than anything I just described? It's not a question of the reality. We're fallen creatures in a world full of forces. Of course, we're really feeling these things, but God turns around and says something. Men gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. These words have Meaning. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. See, that's the issue. All this morality in our universe is flowing out of who God is. It's not up for grabs. It's not like there's this God in the universe. He's a particular way. But then there's a set of ideas by which we live our lives. Now, we were designed to express the nature of God. So whatever we do in a moral category, it's designed to show forth the image of him. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Those words have meaning. So over and against that, we live in a moment where the phrase, I am a man trapped in a woman's body is having to be interacted with. And it may even be someone who you deeply love and care about who says that to you. But your deep affection for them and their subjective experience is not the basis for your belief system. The nature of God is the basis for our belief system. Quick thought. I'm going to skip... There's a great quote in your outline that's just highlighting the fact that generationally the church is having a really hard time with this. A really hard time with this. Young people are engaging ideas and hey, this is not new. All the baby boomers in the room here, nobody was worse at this than we were. No one. You, you, you know that, that 1972 statistic? You're the one who screwed it up right? 1952, 1902, 1820, 5%, 5%. It's probably just consistent, consistent until it reaches the baby boomers. And then suddenly everything changes. So I'm not just knocking, you know, young people, just young interactions with ideas run a risk. You run a risk. Because you you don't yet know what things are fixed and immovable. And you're trying to figure out what to believe and what to define. And so this, you know, you've heard us talk about this, this massive deconstruction that took place in the last decade. Part of it is because of that. Because the world has taught you not just to have a different set of ideas, but to hate, hate the ideas that another generation seems to be hawking. Now, can I just tell you, every idea that's unique to that generation and doesn't draw from the authority here, you're free to hate it. But if it's immovable truths, no matter how narrow it is, it's truth. It's the source of our convictions. So just a couple of quick thoughts, and then I'm going to pray for us. The gospel is... Filled with absolutes because God doesn't change. I am the Lord God. I change not. So out of this comes things like your salvation. If I were to say, hey, what's your conviction about your salvation? About the concept of salvation? Do you you own something that's immovable? How do you do with verses like this? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. But by me, no man, does it really mean there's no other way of being reconciled to God apart from Jesus Christ? Do you have a conviction about that? Or is that like, yeah, I kind of casually consider that until I bump into my cousin who's a Buddhist and he's really, really sincere. And this person over here who really doesn't acknowledge Christ in his saving work, but you know, they go to church a lot and they're, they're really decent people. And they're kind to others, a lot kinder than some of these people are. And so does that mean I kind of pick up the concept of salvation and I move it over here? And I set it down over here? Okay, it doesn't sound like a conviction. That sounds like a casual consideration. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is that a conviction for you? What do you do when somebody comes along and says, you Christians are so stinking narrow-minded. Come on, give me a break. That's the only way you actually believe that. I don't get to relocate it to a location that you might like better. It's a conviction. It's fixed and immovable. I just got to let it be what it is. Or just anything that has to do with righteousness. What's your basis for saying anything is right? Or anything is right with God? Well, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's where I have to get my definition from. All right, let me just mess with your world for just a second. Just so you can chew on these categories, but but these are a little bit up for grab. What has God revealed and defined about ungodliness? God has a label. He stares out at humanity and he puts that label on things. He calls that ungodly, that ungodly, that ungodly. It's his disapproval. He's not okaying that. That's not a thumbs up. That's a thumbs down. That's God saying, nope, not all right with that. How does that inform your convictions? The beliefs that are in you that don't move. About abortion. Do you have convictions about abortion? Where'd you get them? From a political speech given in the last year that kind of made sense? From a modern feel for the rights of individuals, particularly women? I mean, where, where do we get our ideas from that we're going we're to develop a fixed opinion about? How about the roles of men and women? Or the way to do marriage? How one spouse treats another one? Whether or not to Divorce? Can I just tell you, and every pastor would stand up here and tell you, these ideas are eroding. We live in a culture where, for some reason, it makes sense to the average Christian more that God would want me happy than God would want me to work through my difficulties and glorify him. What about little innocuous areas? like How about the consumption of alcohol? Do you have convictions in that area? Or just casual considerations. If you're part of a previous generation, you had convictions, but they had baggage attached to them. If you're part of a new generation, you're just going with the flow, whatever. am not sure if you're young, you've thought through all that the Bible says about alcohol and intoxication. And you're informed by that as, as you create a conviction not, not something that's kind of like, eh, yeah, whatever, I've never really thought about it. How about social justice? The world came along a couple of years ago and said, hey, you know what? You need a definition for social justice. And this organization and that group and this racial issue and this interest group over here, they're gonna provide that for you. Here you go. Here's what social justice should look like. Here's what it shouldn't look like. Here's what you should believe about it. You know, there's, there's some really, really radical conservatives in the room here who would be shocked to read Isaiah speak about social justice. You would feel condemned by him about your lack of care for human beings in lesser conditions than you. And then there are some folks who are on the other side of that political issue who don't see social justice as part of a biblical element. They just see it detached. It's part of a segment of society and their interests. Both of those are problems. That's not where your convictions come from. What about sexual engagement and sexual expression and sexual identity? Is that a casual consideration? You know, there are certain things used to be called taboos. Right? remember these, these are taboos these are things that are frowned upon and there's pressure in the community etc etc but we live in the information age and we're all moving too fast to be bugged by most of that stuff so you could be in here today with I've never really thought through should I have sex with that person or not is that okay or not well, because it's so common everybody else is doing it okay, but we don't get our beliefs and our convictions by what everybody else is doing We don't pull the fallen world and say, hey, tell me what to believe. We stare at a God and his character and his nature and we learn who he is. And then we look at our own lives. Am I I imaging him into whether I have sex with this person who I'm not married to? Listen, I'm, I'm bunching up on a lot of these areas. But you just see this one thing When you live in the information age, you're going to come across more ideas for you to consider than you could ever shake a stick at. You'll have more by the end of the week. And somebody's going to do a really good job of making an argument, of telling a story, a compelling personal story that grips your heart and makes you go, yeah, yeah. Hey, if somebody breaks out their personal, compelling years ago desperate situation that they were in and they did something in that moment that is ungodly that doesn't change the label nor does it prohibit your compassion for them compassion plays out in a world that's broken in all kinds of ways So if you meet a woman who's had an abortion, please do not pick at her, take out a sign, walk in front of her house. That's a human being who went through a situation in a moment that made a decision out of things. If you understood them, you would at least have compassion for them. However, it should not change your convictions. Things are right or wrong, godly or ungodly, because God has said something about who he is. And that doesn't change. So listen, 2024 is unfolding, and you're going to do life this year in 2024. And this card you just picked up to play this morning, it's a card about convictions. It's about what you firmly believe that is not going to change by the time you get to end of 2024 or 2026. You got some of those in your life? You got convictions in your life? You're going to need them. Let's stand up together. we've talked about a lot of different ideas that touch our worlds. Lord, I don't want to try and chase down every one of them to see if we need to adjust some of those individual things this morning, but I do think one thing in particular needs to be settled in our hearts. And that's whether there is an ultimate voice that settles things for me. Is there an ultimate voice in this world that settles things for me? Or am I blown by every wind of doctrine? Caught off guard by my emotions? Relocated by even something good like my compassion? Or is there an ultimate voice that settles these things for me Lord your word says no man can say Christ is Lord except by the spirit you must do a work in our hearts that turns to you and says you are Lord you are the owner of everything I see you are the inventor and creator of everything that exists Lord what do you say about this what label do you place upon this? Does this reflect your glory or is it being exchanged for something else? Oh Lord, the one thing you desire for every one of us is to be helped, strengthened, and protected by you being Lord of our lives. So God, would you rescue us from thinking that some other idea is going to be better for us than what you have said. Lord, give us convictions in our lives that are good and healthy and strong and vibrant and don't move. They're not going to move now and they're not going to move 20 years from now. They're not a mood that I'm in. They're mandates from the King. So Father, I pray for us as a church as we navigate a year of the infinity pool. Would you rescue us from casual considerations? And Lord, would you install in us convictions for your glory, O God, and for our good? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, bless you guys. Bless you guys who are watching. Great to have you with us today. Hey, if you need prayer this morning, please don't ever walk out of here. If there's a need that you brought with you, and just something you need God to touch your life about this morning, come find one of the prayer team members and he'll be happy to pray with you.